Christmas Day Their old familiar carols play And wild and sweet the words repeat Of peace on earth, goodwill to men I thought as now this day had come The belfries of all Christendom Had rung so long The unbroken song Of peace on earth, goodwill to men Hi and welcome to episode 254 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is our last episode for the fall of 2018 as we're about to scatter for Christmas. Uh... Our episode today is on the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem, Christmas Bells, or as you probably know it as a song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. But before we get there, what else is going on in the network? We've got a new sectarian review on the uh, Tarkovsky film Stalker. Uh, I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but I'm planning to do so. We've also got a Christian feminist podcast that should be up by the time this drops uh, on the Controversial tune, Baby It's Cold Outside. Fun. Pietus Schoolman went to Munich. Yep, Pietus Schoolman is done for another however long. That, sh- that show runs when it wants to run and doesn't run when it doesn't want to run. And then, Michael, did we mention last week the uh, shorts of the 50s edition of uh, Before They Were Live? I don't remember, but it's always a good time to plug that show. Well, Josh and I have... talk about shorts from the 1950s for about an hour and 45 minutes. And Michael, for reasons that will become evident, launches into a discussion of gun control. It's true, yeah. I, uh, completely off the cuff. <laughs> As one will. But before we talk about the poem, we wanted to read it out loud. Even if you know it as a song, there's probably some verses in the middle you don't know. So we thought you, we would give you the treat of hearing us read it. So we're going to alternate verses here, and I'll start it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent, and made forlorn the households born, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was once considered one of the great American poets and as recently as 50 years ago was a popular favorite. I I don't know that anybody in my parents' generation would have made it through high school without reading five or six Longfellow poems, but I think his star has pretty well dimmed since then. If I had to guess why, I would say that the the move to include more women in the canon uh, 
you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, resulted in Dickinson replacing Longfellow in a lot of ways. I'm not really complaining about that. I'm just trying to figure out why he's not as popular as he used to be. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with him at all. Others may not be familiar with him beyond this poem, which they know is a Christmas carol, and The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, which uh, I think is still uh, still one people sometimes know. David, can you give us a very brief history of Longfellow, his work, and his posthumous reputation? Well, born in Portland, Maine, 1807, so so not that not that far away from the Revolution. His mother uh, was was actually uh, the daughter of uh, uh, a fellow who fought in the Revolution. Um, so the Wadsworth is his is his mother's maiden name. The Longfellow is his father's last name. So that's that's the Wadsworth Longfellow. Well educated. Uh, writing poems um, in through college and um, and and actually uh, fairly fairly early on um, in his uh, in in his forties he had he was you know pretty ri- writing some some long poems that he was pretty well known for Evangeline Hiawatha um, you know later uh, the uh, the right of Paul Revere. Um, uh, his first wife dies, um, uh, in, uh, through a, a, a tragic miscarriage, um, earlier, earlier in his, uh, in his life, um, in his, uh, in, in the 1830s, he, he remarries, um, and, uh, with his second wife has, uh, has six children. Uh, Frances Appleton. Um, she also passes away in just a a, a a a minor household mishap that becomes um, a, a just a tragic and horrifying accident. Um, she's sealing an envelope with wax with a lock of a child's hair. She's sealing this envelope with wax and accidentally catches her dress on fire. Um, uh, Longfellow himself intervenes, trying to put it out, but is unable to save her from being um, horribly burned. He is so badly burned himself, he can't attend her funeral. And afterwards, to conceal the scars, he grows that um, enormous Old Testament prophet beard that you've probably seen in pictures of Longfellow, if you've seen pictures of Longfellow. Um, so he continues to be, you know, even even within his lifetime, he is uh, one of the the preeminent poets uh, of America. Everyone reads him, uh, and still for, uh, you know, for you know something like a century afterwards, he's he's still a staple. Um, but over over the terms of that century, especially after his death um, in the eighteen eighties. He, he began to fall more and more out of fashion. Um, uh, one quote I uh, one quote I encountered uh, was a critic saying, "You know, no one reads Longfellow but wretched school children," um, which is <laughs> which is just mean. Um, reasons for that: uh, a lot of the subjects that he chooses um, tend to be ones that uh, have a um, 
what I will charitably call an old-fashioned view of the history of of uh, the United States of America, and especially its colonial, uh, its the, the its colonization, um, and so that that kind of romantic view of that era and and those um, that that early settlement era is 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 something that that uh, fell into disfavor for um, well good reasons. Also, he's not. Um, He's not an intensely personal poet, and so you know, as 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 fashions of poetry go, if one is looking for um, kind of wrenching self-revelation or honesty, things of that nature, um, you're you're you're, you're going to tend to not find that in Longfellow. Yeah, I mean, compare him to Whitman or Dickinson, for example, and he seems much less. His poetry seems much less part of his person. Yeah, and you can see why Whitman later, Whitman, both Whitman and Dickinson become more and more the voice that the the middle and later 20th century want to listen to. Um, Whitman is not going to be writing songs of himself, for the most part. Um, Longfellow. You, know, you mean Longfellow? Sorry, Longfellow. Whitman is totally going to be writing songs of himself. I have a hunch he might. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Whitman, Whitman, not so much. Uh, sorry, Longfellow. Longfellow. Blah. Sorry, they I, both I, have beards. That's why the, you're confused. It's the enormous beards. Like <laughs> I, I, I keep, yeah. Which you know, those those are two good. They they are not mutually interchangeable. And yet, here I am. Um, well, you know, it's interesting, David, with with that confusion because I I think nowadays when we think about 19th century American poetry, our minds go straight to Whitman and Dickinson, right? Longfellow is 19th century American poetry in a real sense. Like, like he yes. is what poetry was actually like for the most part in 19th century America. He's he's one of the great specimens of it, but he he's very standard in, in that sense. Whereas yeah. Whitman and Dickinson are both memorable because they break that mold so much. In a lot of ways, I think Longfellow has more to do with poetry in the long-term sort of history of humanity across cultures. He's interested in narrative poetry. He's telling stories in the most case, in most cases he's telling stories that are sort of part of cultural heritage and not personal stories. And so for him, poetry is, is, is a narrative mode. Um, And that's, that's really not something that's, that's been in fashion for, you know, a century or more. Um, but but he's doing he's doing the sort of thing um, that you'd see Alfred Lord Tennyson doing in the Idols of the King or um, gosh Milton or Spencer or any any of the other um, poets in the English language and frankly you know most poetic traditions in most cultures tend towards narrative and tends towards the the, the, the telling of stories that are that are that are culturally important. So, but if, if poetry comes to mean more and more this individual expression, this assertion of individual distinction from, separation from, reaction to um, society and the social mold, Longfellow's not going to be giving you that. So he's going to fall out of your, your anthologies of poetry that are thinking of poetry primarily in those functions. Um, he's also very formal, um, 
most of his poetry, not all. I haven't read all of it. Um, I, I'm, I've, I've heard that there are some exceptions, but most of the ones I've encountered um, are very strongly formal, um, strong rhyming s- schemes, at which can sound sing-songy and kind of doggerel to modern ears. Um, and you know that that's 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 unfortunate, but you know it's it is part of it, and I'm not immune to that myself. I'll read a little Tennyson, and he feels sing-songy to me, and I'll want to go back to, you know, something like Eliot, which makes which feels more like serious poetry to me. Yeah, I mean Longfellow is very very good at the metered poetry, and if you look at Christmas Bells, for example, there's only one line that breaks the iambic tetrameter iambic dimeter pattern that he sets for himself and that's um the unbroken song and that one you can fix as johnny marks fixes it in the in the uh the musicalized version by just combining the two words unbroken he doesn't do that in the the print but i mean this is more or less a, a perfectly metrical poem yeah just a lie of the syllables and there it goes um, Much but, easier to make into a song, it must be said, than anything Whitman ever wrote. Y- yes. <laughs> but, you know, when you put all those things together, um, you have an excellent poet who's doing the sorts of things that most of the last hundred years hasn't been interested in doing. Um, he's doing it in ways that much of the last hundred years hasn't been interested in doing it. And um, for those reasons, I think... You know he 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 falls he falls off the radar, but um, it does us good though I think to sort of pry some of the filter of the last hundred years of what poetry is and does um, off and encounter some things that have that 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 don't come necessarily through that sifted through that filter. I, I want to wander off for a moment, guys. Uh, to what extent do you guys think that has to do with? the invention of the phonograph and therefore recorded music because it strikes me that a lot of the metrical poetry over the last hundred years has been popular song that makes sense and it and it would enhance that impression of sing-songiness oh absolutely yeah i mean if you're used to hearing all of your metrical poetry over a guitar then you're gonna imagine guitars behind longfellow right that that makes a lot of sense Right. And yeah, it does make sense. And it, it, it explains why Christmas Bells is something that people tend to like more than his other poems. I mean, you read the Song of Hiawatha, the very famous first lines, and I mean, talk about sing-songy. By the shores of Gitche by the smiling big sea wall. And it's like that for 300 pages or however long. I, I read it for my comps, but I don't remember how long it is. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Putting it into putting it into music probably softens it a bit. Um, yeah. Right. How much of Longfellow had you guys read? Not very much on my end. Very little here, too. Um, it's so interesting. I've always wanted I've always wanted to delve into it more, but never really, never really been given a reason. He, yeah, I had a professor Terry Dibble who often and loudly lamented that Longfellow had dropped out of the Norton Anthology of American Literature, but he never went so far as to procure for us another copy of it. He just stuck with the Norton Anthology of American Literature. To give our listeners some idea of what an important cultural figure Longfellow was in the 1960s 
There is a Bullwinkle cartoon where Bullwinkle recites, I don't remember the name of the poem, but it's about a blacksmith. His, his arms as strong as iron bands. And Bullwinkle says rubber bands. And um, that cartoon could count on everybody watching it knowing exactly what Bullwinkle was quoting. That, that is the cultural reach of Longfellow a generation and a half ago. And now, if anybody knows anything, it's probably, listen, my children, and you shall hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Or maybe by the shores of Gitche by the smiling big sea waters. I think right. I remember that, that cartoon. <laughs> but yeah, but that, and I'm, some of our listeners are like, uh, who the hell's Bullwinkle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, Tennyson's the kind of guy that, that they would have encountered in, in, in one of those Bullwinkle adjunct shows, maybe uh, maybe the, 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 the little tri- the, the, the time-traveling dog encountered him or something. Tennyson or Longfellow? Sorry, Longfellow. Goodness gracious. David. I know, it's terrible. You're here making a case for the man and you can't even keep him straight from other poets. Isn't it, isn't it awful? I'm the worst. I'm the worst, listeners. The other one people might know is called A Psalm of Life. I don't remember how it goes. I read it for my comps. That is one people sometimes know and recite. Uh, As I said, basically everybody knows this poem as I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Uh, Longfellow called it Christmas Bells. He wrote it at a very difficult time in his life. David has already alluded to a little bit of this, but Nathan, what was happening to him in December 1863 that produced this poem. So we're two years away from the domestic fire that claimed the life of his second wife. Uh, and in 1863, uh, he tells his son uh, that he does not want him to go enlist in the Union Army. His son runs away from home in a letter that he writes home. He tells him that uh, if he's going to have a country, he's going to fight for his country. Uh, and so he goes off against uh, his poet father's wishes uh, to fight and in the course of that fighting he is wounded uh, he comes home uh, you know very severely wounded I mean I and and Michael I, I read over this quickly I mean at this point had he had his health stabilized or was it still in question whether he was going to survive the wound I think it was probably still in question I mean th- this wounding happened November 27th 1863 so less than a month before Christmas I mean, who knows when Longfellow even got the news of it? Right. right. True enough. True yeah. enough. So, uh, you know, those are the uh, big circumstances that I can find. And, and not being an Americanist myself, I tend only to find the big ones. Are there smaller ones, Michael, that I should have found? No, those are the two big ones. But I, th- I think we don't want to breeze over how painful the death of his second wife was for him. And in particular, apparently in his journals, he says multiple times, uh, I will never enjoy Christmas again now that now that she's gone. So wow. I, I th- that, that happened in July 1861. So it's not like it's a Christmas event, but it ruined his Christmases forever. Um, it would seem or, or threatened to ruin them forever um, until uh, maybe 1863 when he writes this, when he writes this poem yeah. on Christmas Day. I mean, he courted her for seven years. And then they had six children together. Like this, this is a man who's logged a lot of a lot of emotional time, and what was actually not a lot of calendar time. Well, and also he already lost one wife, and this woman died in front of him. Essentially, she didn't die at the moment, but she died from wounds 
occur, uh, incurred in front of him that he couldn't keep her from incurring. I mean, I can't imagine what that must be like. Yeah. No wonder he never wanted to celebrate Christmas again. What's interesting to me is how how much Henry Wadsworth Longfellow went through. I'm 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 just going to have to keep saying his whole name to remind me who he is. Um how At many, least you're not calling him Emily Dickinson. Right. Well, she doesn't have a long white beard. Um, so it's amazing to me just how much he goes through emotionally and personally that isn't coming out in his poetry. And often, often I think we confuse a lack of that personal element in poetry with a sheltered or privileged existence. But that is not the case with with this with this man. It's it's more like a kind of reticence, um, and I didn't dip into that part of his biography too. But um, that's something that seems to characterize Longfellow as well over the course of his life. Is especially towards the end of his life, being offered honors and opportunities that he steps back from um, out of this um, this kind of habitual habitual reticence, habitual self-effacement. Well, and also, I mean, at this point, you're 40, 50 years removed from the Romantics, and Victorian poetry, late 19th century poetry, for the most part, is not wildly self-revelatory. And again, right. I mean, you think about Tennyson. Tennyson occasionally reveals himself in his poetry. And of course, you can say all oh, poetry is ultimately autobiographical. But you, you, you compare Tennyson to someone like Wordsworth. And I mean, there is no comparison, right? Yeah. And likewise, there's no comparing Longfellow. Uh, one, of the, one of the unfortunate things about modern education, I don't know how you think about it, is that our students tend to see the primary purpose of poetry as being like dealing with your feelings. And there's some of that is a, a post-romantic thing. It's a remnant from Lord Byron. Part of it is a remnant from the confessional poets of the 20th century. Um, one of the things when you teach freshman classes, as you guys know, is you have to teach them that there are other purposes for poetry. And yeah. Longfellow is interested almost exclusively in those other purposes, not in self-revelation. You get a little bit of self-revelation in this poem, but even there, it's much more cultural and historical than it is personal. Yeah. One of the things I was reading, there's a, there is a sonnet entitled The Cross of Snow that he wrote um about I think about the death of his second wife um that was never published in his lifetime just like this little sonnet that he wrote and kept and that's it no certainly not in memoriam not Tennyson style but yeah still there's there's that one little moment where he's doing poetry in the way that our freshmen expect it. That's <laughs> one nobody reads. Right. Well, this whole poem is built on Longfellow's description of the bells in the first stanza. David, I happen to know you love that description, so tell me why. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat um, old familiar carols that's interesting uh, because bells don't church bells don't play carols in the way that 
we mean carols, right? Um, if he's talking about church bells in mid-19th century, he's talking about change ringing, um, a tradition that begins, gosh, goes back, goes back to the Middle Ages, it becomes especially complex um, in, uh, in, in England. It's, there's, like, there's like this whole tradition of change ringing in England, and then that, that, that spreads over into America. Um, so they're, they're old and familiar and he calls them carols, I think probably just cause it's Christmas. And so the bells are ringing in ways that he's, he's familiar with, but wild and sweet. Like you typically, when you hear bells, you don't think, ah, the wildness of that bell. <laughs> but if you were hearing, if you heard traditional English change ringing, yeah, that stuff is wild because one of the ways, uh, one of one of the things that structures uh, the change ring of ringing of bells is that they'll take however many bells are in the peal. Say you've got, you know, five bells, six bells, a, a, a big seven bell peal. All right, and then you ring them, ring, ring each bell in such an order that you you go through all the permutations of orders of bells without ever repeating until you've gone through all the permutations there's it's like no... schoenberg it's like the 12th tone system yeah it's 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 amazing stuff i mean just look some up on youtube it but you can't hum it it's it it has a it has a mathematical elegance to it when you see it written down but when you hear it the bells are just going all over the place. You can't hum it. You can't whistle it. Um, maybe you could memorize it if you stayed there long enough. But the more bells you have, the longer it takes to get through that whole that whole set of of, of permutations. Um, sometimes sometimes hours. And so the sound is going all over the place all still within the same range because it's the same seven notes but never quite the same way um so that that I, I love that wild and sweet and i think um if all we ever think about with bells is you know if you grew up in a church that had a bell choir or um, if you've only ever heard um like clock tower bells that play a tune ding 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 right that sort of thing you you may you may have that in mind but you need to you need to hear some change ringing bells. So with that description, um, they are both familiar and in some ways uncontainable. Um, like like I said, you can't you can't really whistle change ringing. It's it's not a melody that you it's a melody you can map mathematically, but not necessarily one that you could sing. Um, and and that image of both the familiarity of the sound but also its irreprodu irreproducibility it's it's varied um un, you know hard to uncontainable um complexity i think is a wonderful image of christmas really because every year christmas comes but what christmas is about is this thing that is wild and uncontainable and vast and complex and no no human mind could could hold it all in and yet also familiar and yet also familiar yeah
Anything to add to that, Nathan? Yeah, I mean, that's a great image. I'm wondering how it connects with the the words, because, you know, something that has no melody, I mean, presumably doesn't conjure in the mind, you know, any Bible verse in particular, but these bells seem to repeat that passage from Luke. Yeah, I find that really interesting. Um, except in, in, unless you see, unless you hear the, the church bells as in some, if that is in your mind, the sound of heavenly song, um, which may be because, I mean, that, that is literally the sound, that's literally what it sounds like when the church sings. Not the church is the people, but like the building. <laughs> yeah, I got you. I got you. you. Know, it's also so. In other words, also... it, it is it is alien in the way that a an army of marching angels would be alien to a bunch of Palestinian shepherds. Yeah, and it's coming from above, and it's sweeping across the countryside. Um, it, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I think that's. A, a pretty nice, a pretty nice image of what it would, what would it be like to encounter angelic song? It, it would not be human, and and if a bunch of angels started singing at me like change ringing, um, I'd need to be told, be not afraid too. Sure, sure. I think there's something apocalyptic here too. Um, you know, we're in the middle of the civil war. His his son has been wounded in this war, which he didn't even want him to fight in. The fact that these carols are old and familiar means there's a he, there's this connection to the past before that happened, before his wife died, and that they're wild and sweet means they're coming from outside the civilization that he must have felt like was collapsing in on itself. Yeah. Oh, and one other thing, and this is impossible. Longfellow could not be making this connection, but I have a hard time hitting the lines wild and sweet without thinking of Aslan and, you know, Lewis's Narnia books. But even though Longfellow can't possibly be thinking about Narnia books, um, both he and Lewis can be thinking similar kinds of thoughts about God. Um, right, drawing on the same kind of vocabulary. Yeah. Or yeah. Lewis could be thinking about the poem. Maybe. Um, I, I, I'm not thinking of specific um, verbal echoes, though. I'm just thinking of... Um, you know the the phrases he's 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 not safe but he's good, um, and and that that kind of observation, um, the wildness and sweetness of God, um, the uncontainability and yet um, a gracious kindness that is unexpected on the basis of that alien wildness. Well, we'll get to God in a few minutes. For yep. now, Nathan, I want to talk to you about a single word. It's in stanza two. It's the word day. As our listeners heard Grubbs read earlier, Longfellow's narrator says that he, quote, thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I have always breezed over that word day when I've heard the carol in the past. But when I read the poem on the page, it really jumped out at me. What sorts of meanings are contained in those three uh, ordinary letters? One thing that's interesting and in, uh we, we might get back to this later, but I want to bring it up now while I'm thinking about it, is that choral versions of this carol uh, tend to render it and thought how as the day had come. Uh, when pop versions come along, they tend to render it and thought now that the day had come. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. So, I mean, in the pop versions, it seems simply to be a reference to Christmas in a sort of, you know, uh, Christmas carol 
everyone's feeling good since. If you historicize it, though, I mean, Longfellow is in New England uh, in the 1860s in this, you know, grand moment of what I would call, uh, you know, Protestant modernism, uh, where, you know, the day uh, has a sense that, you know, history is reaching its culmination in some way. And certainly uh, in the writings of this period that I'm familiar with, and Mike will be more familiar than I am, uh, there's a sense that, you know, the Civil War and the expansion of, uh, you know, Anglo-American influence in North America and all these sorts of things, uh, you know, have, as Michael said, a kind of apocalyptic import to them. The Day of the Lord, the Old Testament prophets often say, and in the songs that, you know, come from the 1860s, most famously uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, there's a sense that um, American force is the vehicle by which that divine moment will come, right? And so the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song, right? Uh, everyone has been waiting for the day. Um, and so, you know, there there's this historical sense at the very least implicit in this verse uh, again as it's written not necessarily as uh, being Crosby sings it uh, that you know this Christmas is what all the other Christmases before have been waiting for uh, so I mean you know it, it, it seems a little bit uh, trite to you know reduce it to the shorthand of post-millennialism uh, but it's certainly at the very least that it puts a lot of pressure on this one day, doesn't it? On on Christmas Day, 1960, 1863? Oh, absolutely, yeah. But, again, you know, this is not uh, unique in this period. Yeah. Would that make it an Advent carol? K- kind of, except we actually watch Christmas come in the next verse, right? Ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. So, I mean, yeah. the day literally breaks. Well, not literally breaks, but the day literally dawns in in the third stanza so i it's an advent hymn i suppose but really i mean this is this is as close to an actual christmas hymn as secular songs get i think yeah yeah i think so i think so but yeah i'm fascinated by that word day the eschatological significance of it had never occurred to me before but um well i've got some thoughts on that that i'll bring up at the end of the episode yeah yeah i'm trying not to steal my own thunder as we get towards the end but uh yeah i mean it's definitely a historical pointer there. It's also, um, in, in just sort of, uh, mo- mo- most basic terms, um, as in, uh, as I'm in, in, in the, the routes that I'm familiar with it, um, it would, uh, sometimes be traditional to start ringing the bells, um, for Christmas or for New Year's. Uh, or some other occasion like that at midnight, so that they would be, so and, and especially if lo- for long peels going for hours, um, they're beginning before the sun comes up and as the sun comes up. So if if that's a, the, also the kind of situation that we're supposed to be imagining, this is a this is a sleepless night into which the bells begin to sing and then the dawn. Can you imagine that- trying to sleep through that racket? <laughs> what six hours i mean good lord it's close to the the longest night of the year too so you're talking at least six hours of people ringing these bells that you've already described as essentially randomized yeah oh yeah 
There's a Sayers novel called The Nine Tailors, in the first chapter of which Lord Peter Whimsey partakes in uh, ringing a New Year's Eve peal. Uh, and it, it, it takes hours and hours and hours. And she, she writes very vividly the, the grueling um, stress field because, because they have to be focused this entire time. Um, the, all, all of this, the, the, the strain and the rigor, um, that goes into, um, one of, in, 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 into one of those long, long sets of, of peeling. And, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool scene and I recommend the whole novel, but especially that. I was just thinking how nice it would be to live in a town where the, where you heard the church bells ringing all the time, but I think I'm walking that back. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a few miles away maybe like a country church like five miles that away so i just i kind think of the catholic this. church in hopkins rings bells at noon every day i don't know anyway uh when this poem is sung as a carol typically only the first second sixth and seventh stanzas have are sung i don't know that i've ever heard uh the other ones presumably because stanzas three through five are much more topical than we prefer from our christian uh, christmas songs David, what's going on in those stanzas? Well, especially, uh, especially four and five, um, uh, four with its references to cannons thundering in the south, uh, five, um, which is you know comparing uh, the Civil War to an earthquake rending hearthstones. Um, like th- those are those are especially topical. Um, the th- the third one, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night and day. Um, that one, that one probably falls out less because it's topical, but more because it's just sort of saying. And then the world turned a little more, and here's the refrain. Um, you know, and, unless you have this image of d- song in the night, and then comes the dawn. Um, unless you've got that image which we don't have when we sing the carol, really. Um, that stanza isn't serving as much of a purpose. But I'm absolutely with you on, on on four and five, and have talked myself also into three, because I really do think that um, he- hearing the bells in the dark and then ushering in the day, I think that's, that's a really important image to have in the poem. I, I would actually say that that line, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, that's actually really important if you're going to keep stanzas four and five because uh what the what the what the bells give you is an illusion that we're all united Mm. i mean that's that's what's broken in stanza four then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south i mean what it's breaking is this unified voice that we're all singing christmas carols with right right because it's the belfries of all christendom that are that are ringing this out and yet the belfries of all Christendom are rolling out a song, a voice, a chime, a chant, and it is a sublime chant. Okay, I had not. For the first noticed. two and a half hours of this bell ringing, he has convinced himself the Civil War is over. Yeah. Oh, that almost makes me want to cry a little bit. It's kind of a sad song. I don't know if you knew that. Well, I I didn't realize it had gotten sad all the way already in the third verse. Like I knew things got tense in the fourth one, but 
Um, now, now the sadness is creeping forward, I guess. Um, but don't worry, Grubs. The newsboys show up at the end. God's not dead. He's making a God's not dead joke. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. So cool. That's the third stanza. Uh, stanza four. Um, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. So, um, unlike the mouths of the bells, right? So a bell is basically like a big closed tube with um, this giant downward pointing mouth. Um, cannons are kind of shaped like bells, um, except from these mouths uh, comes not a chant sublime, but comes thundering death and these new these new accursed mouths are drowning out the blessed sublime mouths um and they're thundering in the south so yeah the civil war um is disrupting what should be the universal song of the bells of christendom um and then that image of the disruption of what had been unity comes with the earthquake the earthquake rent the hearthstones. So it's not just another any old earthquake. It's one that is um, breaking up um, that that most homely image of domestic unity, the hearth. Yeah, it's a very union image that way. You know, the the continent as a household, and right. these continents are breaking that up. And it's right. breaking the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So these are specifically Christian houses that are essentially destroying themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I really think putting these verses back, per, put, yeah, putting these stanzas back in um, uh, deepens, deepens it so much. Um, now, I, I, I understand the instinct to pull them out because... You know, unless you're singing it, you know, during some kind of Civil War reenactment Christmas party, um, the the historical reference feels a little odd. Um, but uh, pulling them out again also, I think, pulls some of the punch of the song. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. Think... Why, why is he despairing? Even when I was a kid, and I I came to the third verse, I always wondered like. What 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 accounts for his despair? It's it seems so unearned, without the black accursed mouths. Yeah, it's like, come on, bro, why are you gonna bring us down on Christmas? And he's like, oh. cheer up, have a hot toddy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Verse uh, stanza stanza six is not some kind of floating ennui that he just can't shake for Christmas tide. Um, it's uh, when he says the hate is strong. That's what he's looking at. He's looking at the Civil War. Real hate. Yep. The kind that kills people. Yep. Hate doesn't kill people, Nathan. People kill people. I thought it was... uh, With hate. Automobiles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, the repeated line at the end of every stanza makes pretty obvious reference to Luke 2.14. But the first six stanzas of this poem strike me as rather pointedly secular. God himself doesn't show up until the very end of the of the poem. Nathan, is this a Christian Christmas song or a secular one or one that belongs to American civic religion or something else that I haven't thought of yet? 
Uh, I'll take A, B, and C. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is a wonderful specimen of American Protestant civil religion. You know, this is uh, a carol that, you know, sees the events unfolding in America uh, as part of the, you know, salvation history of God. Uh, which is not a bad place to start, honestly. Uh, There's times I certainly prefer that to the more abstract God-who-doesn't-take-sides kinds of theology. Um, But, you know, it is is characteristic of this, uh, you know, modernist Protestant movement, or moment, like I said, uh, where the sense is that uh, whatever it is that Christianity is trying to accomplish in the world is... uh, unfolding in North America in the 19th century and there's a sense you know if you start from there uh, that the Civil War is one of the last great purgations of sin uh, whether that you know whether you frame that sin first and foremost uh, as the disunity of the American nation uh, or whether you frame it first and foremost as slavery as abolitionists no likely or no doubt would um, but I mean you know uh, to try to separate the Protestantism from the American uh, patriotism and to separate those from the sense of, you know, a, a historical destiny, perhaps even a manifest historical destiny, uh, I think you're going to miss the point of what's going on in this thing. I liked your use of the word secular, Michael, um, because in the... In the, the the original use of that word, you know, the secular, the seculum, um, the time between Christ's coming and which Christ's comings in which, you know, things just sort of continue as they were. And then, and then comes the day. Um, I mean, this is a song about how every Christmas day, this happens. It's the old familiar one. You know, the years have just been rolling along. Um, in this seculum, in this in this age, um, but the 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 one of the ways in which um, God's people keep faith in the interim time, in the seculum, um, in the in the age between days, so to speak, uh, is is to continually remind themselves of what the seventh verse does, um, that that they're that the the round that we seem to be in the cycle that we seem to be in the age that we are in is an age that will end um and so the the wrongs that we see simply as part of the unending cycle um are wrongs that will get their comeuppance and so forth and so you know in in that way yeah it we can also say this is a secular song in that sense too and and in a positive way to me, the real key of that last stanza is that it takes peace on earth, goodwill to men as something that has been accomplished, which is what it is in the other six stanzas. It's either been accomplished or it's failed to be accomplished. Yeah. And and it moves it into the future. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So this is now something that has not been accomplished. The eschaton has not been imminentized. I can never say that word. Um but it's something that will be accomplished. And only now that God enters the picture can Longfellow see that. 
I have no idea what Longfellow's personal religious beliefs were. I'm sure he saw himself as some sort of Christian because he was a 19th century American. Um, but I think this poem is probably more Christian than he imagines it to be because the hope in it uh, doesn't come from any kind of earthly institution whatsoever. It's the earthly institutions that have failed, and it's the reminder that God is not dead that, that gives yeah. him whatever hope he finds. That's, also, that's also what all the prophets say. Um, that God isn't sleeping. God is paying attention. God is noting what is being said. Um, I mean, when we watched Prince of Egypt last week, um, you know, all of those years in which uh, Israel cries out and thinks that it is not being heard, but God was not asleep. Um, he wasn't dead. He wasn't asleep. Um, he was biding his time. Um, and then the day comes. I, I, I think it's, a, I, I think you're right that it's a, a very, a very Christian way of of thinking and speaking, a very biblical way of thinking and speaking, whether he means us to to take all of that and pour it back in, um, pour it into those words. Uh, I don't know. I can't read Tennyson's mind, but... Longfellow. Ah! Longfellow! <laughs> Long... Now, Michael, I want to press back on that just a little bit, uh, and I'm going to defer to you because you're the, you're the Americanist here. This is, a, this is not a trap. Uh, but... It strikes me that separating that neatly, God's agency from the agency of Protestant America, that doesn't strike me as a very 19th century move. That strikes me much more as a sort of post-liberal, late 20th century move. Is that something yes, that fair. is that something that that, that uh, Longfellow would have had at his disposal there in the 1860s, or is that something that was yet to be articulated in a widespread way? I mean, I certainly think, if, again, if you think of the battle hymn of the Republic, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord well. I mean, it's the Union Army that's bringing about that, bringing about that glory. It's not that God, uh, everybody's stepping back and letting God do it. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think Longfellow wouldn't make that separation. But on the other hand, when we sing the song, I think we're allowed to. Okay, yeah, that, that I can get along with. I, uh, I, I, What I thought I heard you saying was that Longfellow was sort of a proto Howarwazian in this poem <laughs> no no I, I think the it to the degree the poem is Howarwazian it is unconsciously for Longfellow okay I, I can get on board with that I can get on board with that okay I'm I'm, I'm not nearly as concerned now Michael <laughs> application yep. not interpretation to use yep. uh, Edie Hirsch's terms I mean, he was also publicly an abolitionist so he he's not he's he's not necessarily promoting any kind of quietism but not not that Hauerwas is either. Um, no, but Hauerwas would also be, and I, I think this is safe to say, a lot more reticent to make the movement of American history and the movement of God's eschatological salvation nearly as uh, parallel as 19th century Protestants tended to do. Or James Cone. Or James Cone, for that matter, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to move on from this question uh, before I, I note, um, and, and I got this from our press liaison, Kristen Philippic, and I want to note it so that she doesn't think I ignore her. Uh, she pointed out on Facebook that uh, this is kind of built on a bad translation of Luke 2.14. The King James Version, which is almost certainly the one Longfellow would have used, says, uh, 
Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We all recognize that from Linus. Yeah. Um, I think that might be a bad translation. The new revised standard version says glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is a very, very different thing to say than peace, goodwill toward men. And I, and I saw Kristen say that on Facebook, Michael. And uh, my Greek professor, when I was in seminary, made us translate that passage to right around Christmas time. Uh, and she is right. Yep. Yep. Bummer. I still like Longfellow's version. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't mean me like, ah, oh, yeah, I'll trash it. <laughs> well, and he doesn't cite Luke 2.14 anyway. He never claims to be quoting it. Well, and it also doesn't mean that goodwill towards men is therefore something that Christians should eschew because that's a bad way to translate that one line in Luke. Right, right. Well, I'm going to have to rethink my behavior on Twitter. (laughs) Speaking of my being a jerk on social media, I cooked up this idea, the idea for this episode, after I got into a rather animated discussion on Facebook about the casting crowns recording of the poem, which adds what is to my ears a unnecessary and distracting chorus. Uh, I know this is only tangentially related to the subject at hand, but until we do an episode about praise choruses, this is the only place we have to talk about this. Why does that bother me so much, David? Why? Now, I don't know why it bothers you so much all the time. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not up in your noggin. I'm not feeling your feels. But, um, as you say, it is unnecessary and distracting. <laughs> um, so Should we say what the chorus is? I, I didn't actually mention that. I'm going to read it. Please. So this is, this is actually from 2008, right? So this is, this, is, this is 10 years old. Just let that settle in for a second. This has been polluting people's understandings of this poem for a decade there yeah. there really is no peace on earth now i'm bowing my head in despair <laughs> no, yeah not 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 quite as long as some of the hymns have been corrupted but but yeah 10 years so i heard the bells on christmas day all right we know that and then the, the chorus is and the bells are ringing and then you have a children's choir singing peace on earth like a choir they're singing Peace on earth, and my heart I hear them. Peace on earth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Okay, so really technically it's just three lines with the phrase peace on earth, and the bells are ringing. Okay, we already knew that. Not necessary. Like a choir they're singing. Well, not if you actually knew the sorts of bells that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is actually hearing. They're not at all like a choir singing. Like a little a little tri- uh, you know children's choir singing peace on earth. That is Actually, it kind of is like some of the children's choirs I've heard. Okay, that's fair. Um not not the well-disciplined ones that they get to join along with them in this song. Um that that's sweet, but it ain't wild. Right? Um you know, that's that's one of the things that that this that this chorus um, I think jacks up the, the the wildness inhumanness of the bells is something that falls out um, and in my heart I hear them 
well, no, he's he's literally actually hearing actual bells with his actual ears, um, and then imagining that the, that that same kind of peal could be heard by anyone within Christendom in range of a church. Um, now, yeah, these are not some kind of abstracted imaginary Christmas bells. Um, which, frankly, these days, if you ask someone, "Can you hear the Christmas bells in your heart?" What they're going to hear in their in their in their hearts are, "Jing, jing, 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 jing." <laughs> yeah, they're not right. So it just it it it's it's just kind of sappy, and. I mean the song the the poem already borders on sentimentality, right? Let's let's be honest. This is a semi-sentimental poem to begin with. Yes, but in a time in which sentiment was taken with great seriousness. Um and also it's a sentiment that goes that goes into some some um into some deep places. This is not vapid sentiment. Um and that little chorus, well, one, why do you even need a chorus? Well, because, well, because you're gonna need to, you're gonna need to sing it as a praise band, which means you need a chorus and a hook and all the rest of it. And also, so your frontman can emote in between the children's choir bits. And so yeah. somebody can get paid for it. Let's not, let's not forget that somebody has to get paid. And that I think is maybe one of the other reasons why you get bothered by this, um, uh, is. It's 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 another way in which kind of contemporary artists, um, sort of, parasitically attach themselves to treasured songs that happen to be in the public domain, and then um, when that version becomes popular now, whenever you sing "Amazing Grace," um, you know you gotta throw some dimes at Chris Tomlin. And also, thank uh, God uh, somebody finally rescued "Amazing Grace," though. I mean, thank God. Yeah, I mean that uh, musty old song had nothing to say to anybody until they added "My chains are free" to it. Yeah, and it added an extra beat every bar. That's the part that irks me. <laughs> it's yeah. not a freaking four-four song, people. Yeah, because Amazing Grace. Yeah, but you just, can't expect praise bands to yeah, play waltz time. Yeah, Amazing Grace had just 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 been lying there unused until Chris Tomlin wandered into the back room of Christendom and saw Amazing Grace and said, "Hey, buddy, I bet I could refurbish you." The one that bothers me the most is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which adds a new verse which has nothing to do with the original song and actually, I think, has the opposite message. And amidst from the most of the song. song. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a song about being tempted to walk away from Christianity. It is not a gentle song. It is very, very heartfelt. And, and It's not something you can just add yeah. a bunch of cliches to and maintain the meaning. And the modern and the, the, the current freshening up of It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, I have been fortunate enough not to hear that one. Yeah, I don't think I know that one either. Um, Grubs. Yeah, it's. <sighs> I really don't want to. I really don't want to complain, complain too much because um, our our worship pastor is one of my friends, but that's the version they sing now, and the first verse is sung is sung pretty straight, traditional, and. Everybody joins in loud and proud because they think it is well with my soul. And then the next slide comes up and it's a whole bunch of lines that are not it is well with my soul. And there's choruses and a bridge and 
you know, you can you can, you can see people falling out of the song. But somebody got paid. And it wasn't And I want to make it clear that this is not an aesthetic issue. That's what somebody on my Facebook accused me of. Um, it's not that I don't like rock music. I, you know, if you want to do a rock version of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, be my guest. In fact, I'd go so far to say if you want to add something to it that is as well written and um, as the original and thematic with the original, I, I, I could see a place for that. But the chorus on this is unnecessary at best and... To me, it pushes it entirely into sentimentality in, in a way that, that that's really, um, I don't want to use too strong a word. I was going to say nauseating. That's not strong. It's, it's, it's annoying. Can we say trite? Would that work? Trite is right, yeah. One other thing to point out about this one in particular, um, it's the, the, the line, in my heart I hear them, seems very typical of evangelical worship music to me. And I'm, I'm glad Nathan made that joke about God's Not Dead by the Newsboys earlier. You might remember from my rant five years ago about God's Not Dead. I, took a, I take a special offense at the line, um, well, you know, God's Not Dead. Uh, he, he's living on the inside roaring like a lion, which is you know, blasphemous. If God's not dead, it's because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in the first century, not because he's living inside my heart. And and I, I, yes. I think it's really interesting that it's in my heart I hear them because we have to make this as personalized as we possibly can. Instead of this being something that's about all Christians everywhere, this is about me feeling warm about hearing the bells. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, Carl Bart. <laughs> you know it, it may okay i'm going to i'm going to i'm gonna i'm gonna reach so far that my joints creak and and try to see if i can find a charitable way to read this um it's profoundly unlikely that most contemporary listeners to this song are going to be hearing Longfellow style bells on Christmas Day. Like maybe the only bells that they hear are going to be their sort of vague, idealized Christmas bells and the heart bells. But, right from the song Sleigh Ride. Another Christian Christmas classic. Yeah, yes. So, you know, that may be the only place they hear Christmas bells. But still, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't. One, one don't other do curious thing about this this remake though, Michael, uh is that it moves the third stanza to the end. And so the, you know, the great uh, you know, battle between the cannons and the bells is secondary to this sort of, you know, interior sentimental rise at the end. Uh, 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 a sentiment which is explicitly destroyed in the poem itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the in the course of the poem's narrative, uh, you know, the sentiment of Christmas comes and he senses that, you know, the Civil War isn't really happening, as you already said. And then the canons say, no, mother <laughs> Civil War's still going on. And then the bells come back and say, no, <laughs> Christmas, we have the last word. Yeah. <laughs> Heavens! I guess is it is that is that your modern remake of this? 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> well, you the can, radio you can edits? say this. At least it's not sentimental. <laughs> right. Well, but it is a battle for the souls of a continent, right? Uh, it's not something that's already decided when the song begins. Yeah. Oh, and and okay, and so by relocating that that verse, the world revolved from night to day. By by shifting yeah, I mean, it that, down. Yeah, that is supposed to be what the canons disrupt. But instead, that becomes the result of having happy Christmas feelies. Right. Well, and it's as if Christmas is really all about family, if you think about it. And it's as if the, <laughs> uh, and it's as if the day that the the day that God is not dead nor doth he sleep, um, that it, the day that that looks toward is the day that comes up within the song itself. It leaves you with nothing to look forward to beyond the song. They've re-immunitized the eschaton. Yay. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So, so it's interesting, Michael. I mean, when I when I read your notes for the show, I assumed that was the big change that you were interested in, and then you and David talked about it for fifteen minutes and never got to that. So, I, I you know, like I said, I mean, that's what struck me the most about the uh, uh, casting Tomlin whatever remake of it. <laughs> casting crowns. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Aren't you friends with them, David? I have met Mark Hall. Um, my uh, my in-laws go to uh, Eagles Landing Baptist, uh, which is where which is Casting Crown's home church. So, uh, I I've, I might I've, he hear this? I well, I feel they don't listen. To, they don't listen to us. Um, but I, I I feel I feel bad being mean about this. But I don't feel like I'm being mean. I feel like I'm. I feel like we are critiquing things that ought to be critiqued. Um, I will say that Mark Hall is actually a, a a very nice, kind man. He's a great. Uh, he's he's a great youth pastor, and um, uh, yes. But but I, I really wish they would not have done this. Well, what have I left out of uh, the discussion? I feel exhausted. I'll let you guys. Uh, I'll let you guys finish this. Nathan, uh, what else is there to say about I heard the bells on Christmas Day? Well, first of all, I've learned a lot just in this recording session. I mean, the uh, I honestly had thought about more of a melodic, uh, you know, church steeple kind of setting. I, I think David does well to remind us that that wasn't the norm in that moment. One thing that I'll note about uh, modern remakes of this is that uh, if you troll around on YouTube a bit, as I did prepping for this episode, you can find a dozen different renditions of this. Uh, and it's a, a wonderfully flexible song. Uh, the words can change, as we discussed earlier. Uh, there's a couple definite melodic traditions uh, that you know different pop stars and different choirs will take. Uh, you know, it is a song that... Uh, Sounds good in different versions, so I, I don't think that's nothing. David, what do you got to add here at the end? I uh, I feel like we settled down next to this next to this poem and and milked it rather thoroughly. Um, but I wanted to ladder uh, lateral to another poem that um, may help you get into the wildness of those poem uh, of those bells a little bit more. And that is Poe's interminable 
um, uh, poem The Bells, which after a while is is kind of hilarious and almost a self-parody of itself. Self-parody of itself. That's redundant. Anyhow, um, yeah, Pose The Bells... The paean of the bells and his merry bosom swells with the paean of the bells and he dances and he yells, keeping time, time, time to a sort of runic rhyme to the paean of the bells, the bells. Anyway, there, there's something of the jangliness of that kind of bell ringing uh, that comes across in Poe's poem that isn't necessarily there in Wadsworth's. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's. <laughs> He's not At least you didn't call him Poe. <laughs> <laughs> Right, at least I used one of his right names. Poe doesn't have a long patri- patriarchal beard. It's probably probably the reason. Anyhow, yeah, Poe po, pose the bells might help you get some of those so, help, help you get some of that wildness. Well, um, I hope we have not ruined I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day for you. I hope that our discussion <laughs> of it has opened the poem slash hymn up to you uh, even more than it was before i hope that if you find yourself singing it in a in a christmas eve service that you sing all seven verses and uh, not just one two six and seven if you're in your if heart. you're furious at our dismissal of casting crowns or nathan's uh, muted profanity uh, feel free to send us an email at the christian humanist at gmail.com our website is christianhumanist.org uh, i assume we don't know what we're doing next time Nathan, it would be your turn, I think. No, it would be Grubs. I assume Grubs doesn't know what we're doing. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's in January. I have no idea. Yeah, we usually don't at the end of the season. So come back, I don't know, the second or third week of January, and we'll have a new episode talking about this or that. Um, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Till next time, next year, for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>